my position is that parents should be able to make a decision about whether it's better or worse that their severely disabled newborn infant should live or die. Right. Is this is is post birth as well? Is that correct? Yes, this is post birth as well. Love. Welcome back, everyone. We're beginning season three of the Loaf Podcast now. It's episode one. We're super, super excited to have a huge season featuring, uh, but not limited to, Alistair Campbell, who's known for his role in Tony Blair's government and much, much more. Like the rest is politics, the current number one podcast in the UK. Nikita Gill, who's a world-famous Instagram poet, and my personal favourite, Peter Singer, who's with us here today. He's been called the father of the animal liberation movement and of effective altruism. He's a world-renowned academic philosopher and the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University. Peter, thank you so much for being with us here today. Uh, it's my pleasure, Oliver. So, um, to kind of break the ice and get us, in, uh, get us started with, with the Low Podcast, and it didn't start as the Low Podcast because of bread, however, that's kind of a theme that now we've we're going to keep running through the season, asking all our guests what their favourite kind of bread is. So, what's your favourite kind of bread you make when you're in France, and baguettes, and when you're in the UK? Uh, it's not baguettes in France because they're usually white, and I prefer uh, whole grain or multi-grain breads. Mm-hmm. Um, I do bake my own bread, and actually I'm rather keen on my own bread. It's a mm-hmm. recipe that comes originally from something called the Sullivan Bakery in New York, uh, mm-hmm. Sullivan Street Bakery, maybe it's called. Uh, and you, the, interest, the thing that's different, I've been baking bread for quite a while, the thing that's different about the other this recipe is you use uh, what's called a Dutch oven, one of those cast iron pots with a lid, um, and you, bake, oh. you, put, you put the dough into that for half an hour with the lid on, and then you take the lid off and do another half hour, and it produces a fantastic crust. That's, that's the difference, I think, between using doing it that way and, and still sort of moist inside. So do you bake your own bread? Is that for ethical reasons or is that just the pleasure of bread? <laughs> it's the pleasure of um, which is an ethical it reason. and also, of course, <laughs> of having warm bread out of the oven, which uh, you know, everybody enjoys. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, so do we. So just to begin as a sort of um, more general topic, something that's a huge topic of discussion right now is freedom of speech. I'm sure you have an in- instrumentalist idea of freedom of speech, but I just wanted to ask you, what your opinions are on the Oxford Union platforming Kathleen Stock and whether you think that was a wise decision or if there was anything about it that could have been done differently. I don't know enough about how it was done to know if it could have been done differently. I certainly think that views like uh, Kathleen Stock's ought to be able to be aired and discussed, um, especially in universities. I think that's you know, one of the functions of universities is to have ideas expressed and then have them rebutted by people who don't agree with those ideas. So I don't know whether there was opportunity for opponents of, of Stock's views to rebut uh, what she said. I would hope that there would be, because again, I, I think that's exactly what universities should be about. You don't have to agree with ideas in order to think that they uh, deserve an area. Yeah, that's, that's true. I think it's an interesting point, because I actually came to watch you in the union not so long ago, and that's when I started to look into vegetarianism and veganism. Um, and that's what eventually turned me vegetarian and vegan. Um, so it definitely worked. <laughs> um, so congratulations on the release of your new book. Uh, we have them here. Unfortunately, we haven't quite had the chance to read it. Um, I was slightly annoyed about the timing because I only turned vegan recently and I got everyone in my immediate family. So I got four copies of the old Animal Liberation. <laughs> None of them read it really or turned vegan anyway, but now maybe I'll show them the new one. Um, so would you like to tell us a little bit about the biggest changes and why you felt it was necessary to release a new edition? Right. Uh, it was necessary to have a new edition because the old edition 
was frankly out of date in its descriptions of the way we treat animals. I, I don't think the ethical framework was out of date. There's been a lot of discussion about that, and I think generally it's stood up to discussion quite well. Uh, but uh, the, the two longest chapters of the book are describing what we do to animals in the name of re research and experiments and uh, factory farming. And as those chapters had not been revised for 33 years, um, they were completely out of date. So if I wanted the book to remain relevant to the way animals are treated today, it needed a revision. In fact, a revision was, was long overdue. So that was, that was perhaps the biggest changes. But uh, another thing that I added was a discussion about climate change and its relevance to whether we eat meat or not, because there was a chapter on uh, what we should eat, and it didn't really have a discussion of climate change, which obviously is now uh, a major consideration when people think about eating meat. Um, I also wanted to talk about the progress that the movement has made uh, over the last 30 plus years, or if you go right back to the original edition, it's 48 years now. So there was no uh, animal, animal rights mm. movement really in 1975, and I wanted to talk about what that has achieved, uh, as well as talking about what it has failed to achieve, because you have mm. to acknowledge that factory farming, globally at least, is, is yeah. bigger and worse than ever. Did you, did you foresee the impact of your first book as, as kind of founding the animal liberation movement? or I wasn't sure what to expect. Um, on the one hand, in my pessimistic moments, I thought... Uh, you know, it'll get ignored because animal treatment of animals yeah. is just not one of the issues that progressive people at that mm -hmm. stage were taking much note of. You know, they were interested in opposing the war in in Vietnam. I think it was still going. There was obviously civil rights movement. There was a feminist uh, movement, women's liberation, it was then called, um, and there was a start of the gay liberation movement too. But um, animals were not considered a serious issue, so I thought it might not have much response, um, but I also did think that the arguments I was putting forward were strong and certainly learning about factory farming, which I'd only done five years earlier, uh, I thought should have a big effect on people. I thought you know, people do care about animals and they probably don't really know where their food comes from. So mm. telling them about it, I thought would have uh, a significant response. Uh, and I'm obviously very glad that it did give rise to a, a, a new movement but at the same time, I'm disappointed that the you know, majority of people are still eating meat uh, and therefore factory farming is still around. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to reading the book in full. I read it, the, the preface and, and some of the first chapter again. I was comparing the first chapters and the beginnings of which are quite similar, I suppose. Now you're using veganism as a known term, which I suppose helps as well. Yes, that's right. Nobody would have known what that meant in 1975. Exactly. Um, now, to bring on to the argumentative side of your position, you argue in, I like you can say, that people should donate a certain amount of money only to make that psychologically realistic or viable, or rather, there's only need to donate a certain amount as long as that remains kind of viable. How is this different to veganism, and why don't you advocate for reducitarianism instead to make that kind of parallel? Well, one difference is, I suppose, that uh, money is always going to be a certain amount somewhere on a scale depending on how much you have that you can spare. Um, in my original 1972 article I suggested a strong, a strong version of the argument would lead to giving away 
to the point of marginal utility, where if you gave away more, you would do as much harm to yourself as you would benefit someone else. So you could say in that way there's a kind of a natural line, but that's a very extreme and demanding ethic, and um, I certainly don't live up to it myself, so uh, I'm not really advocating that. But um, you know, when it comes to what we eat, I think we can, I don't think it's, it's, it's not all that difficult nowadays to be vegan or, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm not really strict about there being no exceptions and uh, I think what we should think about is the consequences. So the really hardline vegans don't think that I'm a vegan because I'm prepared to eat oysters, for example, um, okay. because I don't think oysters have a nervous system that means that they can feel pain and I don't, don't see any environmental problems with e eating oysters. So. Um, so, you know, uh, I don't think, if, if people say, well, look, you know, I really care about eating meat and I'm not prepared to give it up, but I'll reduce it dramatically and only eat it two days a week, you know, that's making progress. That's like somebody who's quite wealthy and says, well, I'll give 10% of my income, um, although really they could quite easily give 20, 30, 40% without much hardship. But I, I'm still going to praise people in that situation and give 10% of their income because... Mm -hmm. Um, they're doing so much better than most people are. That's, that's really interesting. And it's interesting that you bring up oysters because you mentioned Earthling Ed. And I asked him that question, Earthling Ed, about mussels and oysters and how that can actually be quite sustainable, how they feel, how they don't feel pain. And then I kind of compared that to avocados and the amount of, and it's not directly comparable, but avocados and the amount of, for example, water that's used there, the amount of bees used to transport avocados and I think it was quite a strong argument to say when mussels, oysters, they don't feel pain so what's the issue with eating them? Mm -hmm. What did Earthling Ed respond to that? I would say with all respect it floundered a little bit in his response because I think it did uh, kind of catch him off guard. I think, I think Earthling Ed is definitely maybe more of a hard hardline vegan than you might be and might consider somebody who makes exceptions not to be vegan. Yeah. I think he's, he's potentially one of those yeah. vegans. I think that's from... true. We, we had some discussion at the mm -hmm. event I had um, last Sunday uh, I was in conversation with him, and yes, um, I was prepared to be a little softer on people also, you know, conscientious omnivores who are, are careful about selecting meat from animals who had good lives, not been in factory farms, um, and uh, again, I think, you know, they're, in, in one sense, they're on the same side as I am, and that they're opposed to factory farming, which mm -hmm. seems to me the greatest evil in this area of and of producing animal foods. Um, you know, on the other side, I, I agree that they're, they're not going as far as they ought to. But we need to we need to have allies. You know, the, if you're really strict about it, you reduce the number of people who are going to be on your side in these discussions. Mm. I mean, bringing this back to this Earthling Ed, we also had Mike the Vegan on the podcast. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. No, no, no. Yeah, no, he's just a, a vegan YouTuber. And there's also a cosmic skeptic who's arguably no, one, one of the no. biggest vegan influences in this day and age, obviously, apart from you. Um, <laughs> but anyway, we ran into him outside Tesco's a couple of months ago, and this was before he had announced that he was no longer vegan. My colleague, so Ollie, he, he went up to the Cosmic Skeptic, because Cosmic Skeptic used to go to Oxford, and he's like, oh my God, thank you so much for making me vegan. And, and Cosmic Skeptic said, well, I'm no longer vegan. So we got that news before it was announced publicly, and I was wondering what you think about Cosmic Skeptic, his, his conversion away from veganism, and if you think that might have an impact on the animal rights movement. You have to tell me more about why he ceased to be vegan, because I didn't notice. Yeah, because I saw that you were on a, on a podcast with him. Basically, 
he cited mental health, um, lack of ability to put on substantial weight, IBS, I think, as well. And, yeah, I was wondering how wide your scope is because, obviously, you wouldn't tell someone in extreme poverty to go vegan or would you consider mm. mental health as a substantially compelling reason not to go vegan? I haven't really heard of mental health as a reason for, for not being vegan because I'm not clear what the connection between eating meat and mental health is. I could understand digestive system yeah. problems and if somebody really you know, cannot digest protein that is not of animal origin, say, I would consider that a reason for perhaps moving to being a, a, a conscientious omnivore and finding animal products that you can digest but from animals who've really had good lives and being slaughtered without being trapped to a slaughterhouse. Um, so I could accept that. Um, I don't understand the, the mental illness. Yeah, so you can touch on this. Yeah. just to clarify, um, his reason was that on particularly bad mental health days, he felt uh, that the inability to get correct nutrition with the combination of IBS meant that it made him feel even more low and he wanted food that was particularly nutritionally dense was the words that he used. So okay. it's, it's a difficult one because there are nutritionally dense vegan foods, but that was basically what he cited as potentially for, for micronutrients and that sort of thing. Yeah. It's maybe easier to, to get a balance. When he was on tour and stuff as well, he said he was often eating really kind of cheap food at airports and train stations and it kind of made it difficult to remain. So vegan. I think that's another grounds for exception about being strictly vegan. You know, yes, when you travel, it can be very difficult and especially if you're going for a long time and you're in places where it is difficult and you're not getting adequately nourished but you need to perform you know, for your work. Um, yeah, again, it's, it, it's not, it, I'm not an absolutist about rules. So mm. under those circumstances, you try to find the least harmful food that will provide you with adequate uh, nourishment and will you know, mean that you're, you're not depressed because you're feeling undernourished or you don't have um, your irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I can understand that. But then I think you know, when, when such a person returns to England where it's quite easy to get uh, vegan food, um, why not go back to it? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I, I actually agree with you, but obviously I haven't had a sufficiently in-depth conversation with Cosmic Skeptic about it to get into it, but hopefully we can get him on the podcast one day. Um, just to move a little bit to your ethical views more general and just have some theoretical critique of that, I'm just going to start with the characterization of your view and you can tell me if you're happy with it. So you were a preference utilitarian, you know, a hedonistic utilitarian, which takes the only moral value to be utility and utility being the promotion of pleasure and the dispromotion or uh, going away from suffering. Are you happy with that characterization? Uh, it's brief, but yes, it's accurate. Just, just, just as a general one, just for our listeners before we get into it. Yeah. So am I correct in saying that TM Scanlon was one of the people who influenced your move to an objective meta-ethics? Or... Yes, um, Scanlon was one. Um, I would say um, perhaps Tom Nagel and Derek Carford mm-hmm. were others, and perhaps you know, all three of them. I'm maybe Parfit in particular in the, the On What Matters mm-hmm. trilogy, as it now is, which was then uh, just two volumes, um, uh, which I had seen before publication, by the way, they were circulating in drafts. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was an influence as well. Perfect, thank you. So before we just get into the meta-ethical bit, just to focus on um, contractualism from TM Scanlon, there's an example which I came across in my reading at university from contractualism, which I found to be quite a compelling critique of utilitarianism. And it's the one, uh, so there's a Guy Jones, and he falls in, I'm not sure if you've heard of it, he no, falls into a, yes, yeah, so he falls into a broadcasting tower during a World Cup football final when three billion people are watching. 
and the game would have to switch off for five minutes in order to save him from this almost life-ending, unbelievable, unthinkable, excruciating pain. And when the game is switched off, you have a couple families who start shouting at each other, getting annoyed, trying to fix the TV, all this displeasure from missing maybe like a crucial goal in the match or something. Now, given that there's three billion people, the promotion of pleasure in those people is obviously much, much more significant than the suffering that Jones experiences. But there seems to me to be something important about the one-to-one of in each person, that promotion in pleasure isn't that huge. And the pro- this promotion of pleasure or the promotion of suffering in Jones is, is unbelievable. So would you hold that it's right for the game to be switched off or for it to keep playing and, and have Jones suffer? So given that you describe the suffering as being uh, absolutely agonizing and uh, you know, near-death experience, um, I'm not so sure that your quantification is correct. That is, even though there's three billion people out there who are all of whom are annoyed, and uh, you suggested some families, you know, really start chatting at each other and are more than just annoyed mm. missing a game. Um, you know, we, the question is: is how do you scale suffering, and where is extreme suffering uh, as compared to um, more petty annoyances, or sometimes people talk about mild headaches? Um, it's not, you know, there's no. There's no clear answer to that question, but we can say that the scale is, you know, goes a long way down so that um, you have uh, extreme, extreme agony is going to outweigh um, a vast amount of mild annoyances. So, that, so that's, that's one way of answering your question. Um, the other way of answering it, it would be to say, if in fact we accept the quantification that you proposed, that it's clear that there is more pain in the world and more suffering in the world if we cut off the broadcast for five minutes than if we leave it, um, you know, then I'm prepared to bite the bullet. I, I don't accept the, the one for, you know, the, you've always got to look at who's the worst off, which is you know, Scanlon's mm. criterion of, you know, is this something that everybody could reasonably agree to and mm. claiming that yeah. the person in agony would not. Um, I think that it's, it's a difficult position to, to defend because there's infinitely gradual degrees of pain and, of course, numbers of people. So, um, you know, if you take the view that, um, suppose, so we have this guy who was in extreme agony there, right? Yeah. Okay. So suppose in another case, you, so you could either save him from the agony, but then there would be, in a different room somewhere, there would be two people who were in almost as much agony, right? Very, very bad, but just not quite as bad as this one person was doing. So I would think it's pretty clear in that case that you ought to save two people from nearly as much agony. I would agree, yeah. Right. And so then you just keep multiplying this, right? You just keep multiplying the number of people and scaling down the agony bit by bit. And and it's not clear where that is supposed to stop. There's no obvious line. I think that... I, I, I agree with a lot of what you said. I think that's maybe an issue with quantification and and measurement and utilitarianism more generally. Because for me, and you obviously don't have to agree because you did bite the bullet, there's something about that level of extreme suffering, which even if the, like, if the quantification is correct, so you could, you could scale it, you could have a thousand people suffering like that. And if there was the removal of enough mild headaches, then a thousand people in extreme agony would be justifiable on the basis of a bunch of people not having a headache. And a headache is something you can, you can, clearly deal with so how do you how do you deal with these issues of quantification in your uh, with utilitarianism as a decision-making principle 
Well, the problem is, of course, to say what the levels of pain are and, and how you yeah. compare them against each other. And I don't think there's a good utilitarian answer to that. Um, you know, maybe at some stage when we know a lot more mm -hmm. about brains and pain systems and so on, mm -hmm. um, we'll get somewhere, but I'm not sure to what extent it's an yeah. empirical question and to what extent it's a, it's a, a normative judgment. But, um, but I do think you know, that it's up to somebody who holds that contractualist view that Scanlon does to say where the cutoff is, right? I mean, they can, they can say, well, extreme agony always outweighs any number of mild headaches, but let's start scaling down the extreme agony. And at some point, they're going to have to say, well, now it doesn't. That's not extreme enough to outweigh the, uh, the mild headaches. But, but where and why? So that yeah. has a, a somewhat similar problem in a way. Well, there's loads of tiebreaker issues and sort of similar yeah. suffering and stuff in, right. in contractualism. But um, just to move away from contractualism for a second, you said about how it's kind of difficult to measure. Utilitarianism as, as a value system is distinct from utilitarianism as a decision-making principle. To what, to what extent do you think it's useful as a decision-making principle in your everyday life? Because I'm sure you don't calculate, of course, the utility for absolutely everything you do. So how, how much do you think it should come in and, and where do you think the limits are for that? So I, here I follow what my uh, former Oxford supervisor, R.M. Hare, argued in his book, uh, Moral Thinking. And that is that, generally speaking, the, most of the conventionally accepted moral rules um, are ones we should follow. Obviously, there are, there are some that we would disagree with, even though they're conventionally accepted. You know, we might, at least when, when I grew up, it was a conventionally accepted moral rule that you should not have sex with somebody of your own sex, right? Now, we have good reason for rejecting that conventional moral rule. But, you know, if you're talking about rules relating to honesty and, uh, you know, how you behave to your fellows, um, then I think, generally speaking, they do serve a utilitarian goal. And you should not break them unless you can be highly confident that you're in unusual circumstances which justify an exception where you'll produce a lot more utility by breaking those rules than by following them. Thank you. I wanted to move to a common critique of utilitarianism at undergraduate levels, the, the experience machine. So this matrix-esque idea that you can... That will... This idea that you can have this exact same experience in a different machine, but it's not real life. And I feel like the principle of utility would compel you to agree with the claim that a life identical to yours, however mediated through Nozick's experience machine, would provide the exact same value, excluding considerations about the impact on other people. Um, is this where your intuition actually leads you, or do you just dis dismiss this base intuition for other reasons, perhaps? Uh, it's not where my intuition leads me, but where my ethical theory leads me. And um, I don't trust my intuitions uh, you know, when, when they do clash with my ethical theory, if I'm you know, reasonably confident about the grounds there. Um, I think the reason my intuition leads me the other way is because of uh, something that you briefly bracketed, and that is the effects of being in the experience machine on others. Mm -hmm. right? So I think in the world that we live in, to go into the experience machine would clearly be wrong. You would Maybe you would give yourself... Uh, better experiences, more pleasure than you would otherwise have, but um, you would not be doing anything for other people who could greatly benefit by your assistance. Um, yes. So you need to then specify that everybody can go into the experience machine. Right? Will that then be sufficient for you? If I, well, yes. I mean, perhaps it would. You know, also since I am concerned about 
uh, expanding the circle of ethics to include non-human animals. You just have to somehow yeah. make sure that they were all covered and that, that, that there was nothing you could do to reduce their suffering further in the world. But, um, yeah, you know, maybe that would be a good role. And so I, I admit in yeah. saying that, that uh, you know, it seems to me, well, you know, but they're not really, whatever, whatever you program, I think in Nozick's example, you know, you could climb, uh, climb mountains or do wonderful things that you can't really do in reality. Um, but, uh, and you have the feeling, yes, but you know, you don't, you, don't, you shouldn't really get the fulfillment that you experience with climbing a mountain because you didn't climb the mountain. There was no effort. You just were lying there. It's all hormones, isn't it? So you chemically or in some way biologically program that machine to make that person feel the exact same way. There should be no difference between actually climbing the mountain and feeling it. Well, I agree. Yeah, and I agree. And, and, and as, as I say, it, in terms of where, where the theory leads me, that seems to be true. Okay, so uh, you, you don't think there's a deeper deeper meaning in so-called real life? Do you believe if everyone was in this matrix that that, that is actually m more, more pleasurable and therefore that's what we should be aiming for or what we would well, be? I don't, I don't think there's any point of aiming for it in the world that we're living in because, as I say, we've got all of these other problems that mm. um, um, I think are are more important and can be more good for others. But um, but if you talk about a hypothetical world, um, yeah, uh, I think that's possible. Okay. Um, and in uh, a book that I've co-authored called The Point of View of the Universe, uh, co-authored with the Polish philosopher Katarzyna de Lazari Rady, um, we argue that there's a status quo bias that leads people to not want to go into the experience machine. I think people who this is now at a personal level rather than a moral intuition level, but people who say, oh no, I wouldn't go into the experience machine. There's, there's some research, it's, it's not you know, an empirical proof, but there's some research that uh, if you ask people about whether they would go into the machine, they say no, but if you ask them to imagine that, you're that you are in fact in the experience machine and everything that you believed you were doing up to now was uh, you know, matrix-like experiences, um, would you now like to leave, not knowing, you know, what the world outside the experience machine is like at all, or what you will be in? And, and when you ask that question, uh, then more people say, "No, I don't want to leave." It is. It is I don't know if you've seen the Matrix with with Keanu Reeves. Yeah, this is the red and blue pill. That is the thing. premise. So That's it's right. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you brought up the point of view of the universe, and I read a little peruse of, of that. I was I was wondering how you'd respond to someone who discounts your intuitions from the point of the view of the universe is subject to the same biases which you criticize, so for example being brought about by evolution. So that seems to me to be implausible. Uh, it's clear that evolution leads us to act in ways that mean that our genes survive. Mm -hmm. um, so it leads us to favor our own survival and to favor the survival of our kin who carry some of the same genes that we do. And uh, arguably, it leads us to favour um, those with whom we're in reciprocal relationships because that can benefit us. So we have a tendency to form mutually beneficial reciprocal relationships. And some evolutionary theorists um, think that it leads us to favour our own social group, which might be a small... You know, for most of our evolutionary history, history, we may have lived in groups between one and 200 individuals with a fair amount of kin relationship between them. And that may also be a tendency. But, but the idea that you should actually help complete strangers with whom you don't have any interaction, um, or 
help non-human animals for that matter. Uh, it's hard to see why that would be a product of evolution. Okay, thank you. Thank you, yeah. So in, in reading, I just want to push you on that a little bit. You cited, I think it was three reasons, and one of them for, for what makes an intuition, for example, your intuition from the point of view of the universe, that a world with less suffering and more pleasure is a better one. And one of them was that it doesn't arise from a non-truth tracking um, and an other non-truth tracking explanation. So evolution is one of those examples. But to me, and I'm going to use Mackie's argument from queerness here, it seems more likely that it's from one of those explanations as evolution going slightly wrong or, or, or the, the gene being selected somehow not as selfish but as altruistic, to use um, Richard Dawkins' terms. I wonder how you'd respond to that. Well, I, so you, if you're appealing to Mackey's argument for queerness, then you're rejecting objectivism in ethics, and that's obviously a debate of its own. You could see it to be reliable if, it, if there's not a good explanation where it comes from a non-truth-tracking thing such as evolution, but to me, that's only reliable if balanced against the other prob- probabilities, and abductively, it's the best explanation. So for me, just to summarise Mackey's argument from queerness a little bit, if objective moral truths do exist they are unbelievably different to anything that we encounter now. We see mathematical truths and we understand them, and so it seems we could understand um, the realm that they might exist in. They're descriptive, which is slightly different from normative. So it seems to me less likely that there's a whole other ontological realm whereby there's sort of these normative truths which bind on us than that evolution somehow went wrong or or some explanation of that sort. Okay, so... This is exactly the sort of debate that I had with myself when I considered whether to move from my uh, meta-ethical position, which, when I was a graduate student here, um, followed Hare, and so it was a prescriptivist position in which there are no objective truths, although Hare, of course, for Hare it was a universal prescriptivism which looked a bit like an objective truth but wasn't really when you analysed it. Um, and, and yes, I, I held that view for, for many years. Um, and I, you know, this was at the time when, when Mackey was, was here. And, uh, I knew, knew John Mackey quite well. Uh, and and I, I, I did find those arguments quite strong. But um, I also think that there is... Yes, you're right that there's a difference between mathematical truths and normative truths. Um, Another example you could mention is, is logical truths, the, the, the rules of the valid, valid reasoning in syllogisms, for example. Um, and is that descriptive or is that normative? Um, it's, That's a difficult, yeah. yeah it's not diff- so clear. Um, so uh, I think that given, given that, it's certainly defensible to say that the idea of objective normative truths is as plausible or more plausible than the idea that somehow we have this intuition about looking at things from the point of view of the universe um, because of evolution gone wrong in some way. Uh, but look, you know, that's, that's a big issue in philosophy and I'm not saying that I'm necessarily right, I'm just saying that on reflection and I should add incidentally, you know, we talked about the influence of Nagel, Parfit and Scanlon, I should add the influence of Henry Sidgwick because mm-hmm. the point of view of the universe is a book that discusses Sidgwick's ethics and um, 
defends it in many respects, and I suppose the Sidgwick's writings were also an influence, although they were an older influence which I had read previously um, and, and not accepted um, when I held that uh, universal prescriptivism as my matter. But, um, but it, you know, going back to Sidgwick and reading it seemed more plausible to me than, than it had before. Yeah, thank you. I think we'll, we'll probably leave it there. But the, the last thing I would say on that is, uh, as it relates to logical truths and thing, you know, and things, there's always sort of something you have to drop in one way. And for me, objective moral truths, which are still normatively, I'd say, sli- in a slightly different category than logical truths, they're sort of easier to do away with. With this, and you can move to this sort of universal prescriptivism. Then, if we drop logical truths, you know, we're not able to reason and even talk about these things in the first place. So that would be sort of the last thing I'd say on it. Okay. Um, yeah. As I say, I, I yeah. think there are good arguments on both sides here. Um, moving on to the ever popular topic of effective altruism, um, we just want to um, ask so your seminal essay, Famine, Affluence, and Morality, kickstarted the effective altruism movement, as quickly known. Um, before we get into some of the more substantial um, discussions and arguments, uh, could you give a quick summary of your uh, position or arguments within the essay, um, as well as, I guess, um, whether the argument has evolved over the past 40 plus years. Yeah, firstly let me say I think it's a bit generous to say that the essay kick-started the effective altruism movement because it you know, it it's basically did not lead to any movement mm. for some uh, what, 35 years after it was published um, so I think you have to give a lot of credit to people here at Oxford, particularly uh, to Toby Ord and uh, Wilbur Caskill, um, for you know certainly they had read the, the essay and it had an influence on them. But in terms of saying you know yes this is important and um, more people should know about it and uh, in particular people should also know about how to be most effective in their giving and in their efforts to reduce suffering. Um, I think you know, they they get a lot of credit for, mm-hmm. for having actually started. It. Um, but you asked me to summarise the arguments of the, of the essay. So um, let me set a little bit of background. I was, I was here in Oxford in 1971 uh, when there was a major crisis in what is now um, Bangladesh, but was then East Pakistan, mm-hmm. uh, when the Pakistani army repressed a movement for autonomy uh, so brutally that nine million refugees fled across the border into India. And uh, India was struggling to feed nine million people, uh, provide somewhere you know, shelter for them and sanitation and so on, and uh, appeal to the world for assistance, and got some assistance, but it didn't look like it was going to be enough. So that led me to think about, well, here am I. I was living on a graduate scholarship in Oxford, but my wife was employed. She was a high school teacher, so we had perfectly adequate income and you know, more than we needed for basic necessities, definitely. So, you know, yes, if there are people in great need here, what should I be doing? Uh, and, of course, some people would say in response to that, well, it's not my responsibility, you know, it's maybe put the blame on the Pakistani army for their repression or the Pakistani government or whatever, whatever side you, you take in that. Um, but, you know, it's nothing to do with me. I'm just trying to live my life here in, in Oxford. Um, but I thought that that isn't right, and to illustrate the idea that sometimes it's wrong not to help people, even if you have no responsibility for their being in, 
in need. I uh, gave this little example of imagining that you see a, a toddler drowning in a shallow pond. And, you know, there's plenty of shallow ponds in the grounds of Oxford Colleges, <laughs> you could, so maybe that's why the example came to mind. Um, uh, so suppose that you could easily save the child, there's no danger to your life at all, you know that the pond is shallow enough for you to stand in, but um, there is some cost to doing it. You're going to ruin some really expensive clothing that you're, you're wearing and you don't have time to take off before the child might drown. Um, so suppose you didn't want to incur that expense and discomfort and you therefore ignored the child and walked on. You're clearly not responsible for the child being in the pond. In fact, there's probably some adult, a parent or babysitter who should have been looking out for the child who's been careless and just doesn't seem to be there at the moment. Um, but still, if you just walked on and you're the only person there who could save the child, then that seems really wrong. And when you ask people about that, most people agree that uh, you would be a horrible person if you didn't save the child because you, know, you put the value of your clothes that would get ruined above the life of the child. Uh, so that was you know, basically the argument, and then I do raise the question as to how far you ought to go um, in this, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, I consider the strong version that says you should continue to help people down to the level of marginal utility, mm -hmm. where there's, you can't help people more without harming yourself more. Um, and I also proposed a weaker version which said that uh, you should give until the point where you're sacrificing something that was morally significant didn't have to be as morally significant as the person you're helping. And the idea of that weaker version was simply to get a wider buy-in, that the other version seemed too demanding and nobody would listen. Um, but this would seem, seem to be something that would strike many people as more obvious. So that that's, was the argument of the article. It's very interesting because I um, basically I read, this, I read this essay for secondary school during my A-levels and it's very um, amazing to hear the author of uh, that essay uh, recount the argument uh, to me right now. Um, but regardless, um, a common critique is that effective altruism uh, discourages it, it, its adherents to look critically at political and economic institu institutions. Um, in other words, um, it encourages political apathy and encourages political pessimism um, as a way of you know, in, uh, in, ineffectual to solve structural problems that would cause or that um, attenuate world poverty. So what, do you thought, what are your thoughts on this uh, critique that is levelled against effective altruism? So the critique seems to have some basis in that a lot of the things that effective altruists recommend are small-scale things, like providing bed nets against malaria in regions where uh, children die from malaria, mm. uh, rather than trying to make big structural changes. But I don't think there's anything in principle about effective altruism that says you shouldn't try to make big structural changes. What you need to think about then is what are the chances that I will succeed mm -hmm. in making a big structural change? And um, those chances might be quite small if, if you're confident that the change you're aiming at would actually have huge benefits, right? So it depends what, what it is people are talking about. When I speak about this, I sometimes get people standing up and saying, look, the problem is the capitalist global economic order, right? That's what you should be trying to change, not band-aids like bed nets, right? But, you know, then I ask that person, so firstly, 
what are you going to replace with the capitalist economic order? And secondly, how, you know, if you can answer that question, how are you going to get there? And I've never really had a good answer to either of those questions. So I think the chances of actually achieving something on that scale are so slight that I don't think it's worth putting your time and energy into it. But if you disagree, you know, then you could still be an effective altruist. You could say, I've got this theory of how we can bring about this yeah. change and what the change is mm -hmm. that we need. And I think that benefits of that are so great that even the small probability that my efforts will make that more likely is worth doing. There's nothing contrary to effective altruism in that particular statement. It's just a matter of can you really make that factual claim. I mean, oftentimes many of these um, people who critique um, effective altruism uh, state that it reinforces a paternalistic narrative or relationship of the, um, of the relatively wealthy within the developed world, or within the first world, quote-unquote, um, as serving as benefactors um, of the relatively uh, poorer um, humans and animals within the developing and quote-unquote third world. Um, do you think that argument has any uh, salience or... So firstly, it's not a first world, third world thing because there are now many very wealthy people in developing countries. Yes. Really. I mean, India is certainly an example that has many billionaires um, as well as still having some people in extreme poverty. So um, effective altruism obviously isn't limited to first world billionaires. It's, it's open to people with wealth. They don't have to be billionaires. It's open to anybody who has more than they need to meet their basic necessities of life um, to participate in. Um, it may be true that uh, so far there's been more buy-in from people in first world countries, mm -hmm. um, but certainly the organisation that I founded, The Life You Can Save, is actively trying to partner with organisations in India to have um, transfers from people who are wealthy in India to people who are in poverty in India and to find the most effective charities the most effective Indian charities that can work uh, there. So um, I don't think it's just it's just first world, third world, or or, or you know white people, white saviors versus <laughs> brown people or black people or something of that sort. Um, but it is something about um, appealing to people with more money than they need to live on. That's certainly true because they can help people in extreme poverty and. Why ask people in extreme poverty to help other people? They've got to look after themselves. So uh, I think it's just a, just a fact about the world that wealthier people have the opportunity to do more good and to help more people than uh, people who are less wealthy. Um, and in terms of being paternalistic, I think you ought to ask the people who are receiving the assistance. Uh, do they um, feel like it is? <laughs> demeaning or they're receiving <laughs> is, it, is it demeaning to say look yeah. I, I, we know that you're wor worried about malaria that um, <laughs> you get malaria yourself and it's pretty nasty disease. I actually happen to have had malaria a long time ago when I, from when I was in New Guinea um, and it's a nasty disease even if it was not life threatening for me um, but it is life threatening for small children in particular um, so you know would you like a bed net which will protect you against malaria or protect your children against malaria. Nobody is being forced to say, yes, I'll take one. So I don't see that it's demeaning and that they're being helped. Um, I think they welcome that assistance, or most of them do, and if they don't, well, sure, they don't, they don't have to take it. Thank you. Thank and you. Um, 
just on that point for anyone, since we're tying up the effective altruism part, for anyone who's kind of convinced by your arguments and wanting to help, am I correct in saying that you sort of set up an, uh, an effective altruism foundation for finding the charities which are the most effective? And if I am, could you uh, maybe give a website or something to point our listeners to yes, if they want to help? I set up an, an organization called The Life You Can Save, named after my book with that title. Um, and uh, it curates a list of 20-something at the moment uh, organizations who have been independently vetted and audited as being highly effective, as giving you, you know, really good value for your, for your money um, if, if you donate to them. So you can go to that at uh, thelifeyoucansave.org. And uh, if you want to read my book, The Life You Can Save, you can download it free either as an ebook or an audio book from the same website. Um, and by the way, if you choose to donate to the charities that you will see listed there, um, and there's information on each charity, you can click on something and it will take you straight to the charity's um, own page where you can donate. And uh, The Life You Can Save does not take anything from so 100% of your donation will go to the organization that you choose. We obviously have some other donors who give directly to the life you can save to support the running of the organization. It's not free to do it, but um, your donation, if you choose, will just go to the organization that you think is the one you most want to support. Thank you so much. So just before we sort of wrap up, I wanted to ask a last question about one of your more controversial views, and this is one where you know, cancel culture is becoming a big thing. It's definitely been controversial, but I, I wouldn't say you've been canceled quite yet. Um, so in your interview with the YouTuber Cosmic Skeptic that we just talked about, you talked about the spillover effect that a so-called human farm, which is good for those humans might have. So just for our listeners, uh, Cosmic Skeptic was pushing back on the idea that uh, humans have the same cognitive ability as, as animals if they were in a farm where they were raised until the age of 18, lived an amazing life, and then since they thought they were a part of some sort of cult where they were going to go to you know, another dimension that was ultimately pleasurable. They'd be killed as they walked through the door and that would be good for them. They'd have a good life. And you replied ultimately that the only issue is the spillover effect. Now just to apply that, do you not think that a similar principle could be used with regards to your discourse about the abortion or euthanasia of those born with disabilities and how we view those people, the ones who do live or have chosen to live? Do you think that the idea that their, their life is less worthy ultimately, which even if you are correct about that, your, your discourse, um, do you think that that could have an effect on how we view people and how we treat those people? So let's be clear about what my position is that has offended yeah. some people in the disability movement. Um, my position is that parents should be able to make a decision about whether it's better or worse that their severely disabled newborn infant should live or die. Right. Is this is, is post-birth as well, is that correct? Yes, this is post-birth as well, yes. Obviously, that, and that's an interesting point in itself, because obviously it already happens on quite a large scale that pregnant women get prenatal diagnosis. And when the diagnosis shows that they have a disability, perhaps even a disability that I might not consider so severe, such as Down syndrome, um, the statistics show that the overwhelming majority of them, certainly in this country and most countries that I know, will terminate the pregnancy. So that itself expresses uh, an attitude to having a child with a disability. And so one question I could ask is, if people think that the fact that I support this option for parents post-birth is going to have a negative effect on people's views about pe people's views towards people with disabilities, then I would have thought that 
prenatal diagnosis followed by pregnancy termination would actually have more of an effect because it's much more widespread um, and more people are involved in getting the diagnosis. Uh, but it's interesting that the progressive movements that have attacked me for my views um, and the disability movement does not say that prenatal diagnosis should be prohibited, with, with a few exceptions. I have met some people in Germany who did say they thought prenatal diagnosis was wrong. Yeah. should not be allowed, and so women should not be allowed to terminate their pregnancy on those grounds. But most of the people who, um, you know, I, who I meet don't say that. So um, given that what I'm talking about would be much rarer, especially if you do allow prenatal diagnosis, because many of these conditions would be detected in utero. Um, so is it really going to have that much effect? Um, I doubt it. And, Another reason for thinking this is consider the practice of withdrawal of life support uh, for severely disabled newborns who need to be on a respirator, right? And that's quite common if they're very premature um, and have other disabilities. So um, that also is quite standard here. Uh, and there was this, even this case in England where the parents wanted to treat their severely disabled infant and the doctors didn't. Um, uh, and uh, the courts sided with the doctors there. Uh, so, you know, you could say that would also have an effect on uh, these attitudes. But um, I think that what, I'm, what my view is based on, and again, it certainly follows from a consequentialist view, that uh, the difficult decision to make is when would it be better for a severely disabled infant to live and when would it be better for that infant to die and that is going to depend on uh, factors about the nature of the condition um, also perhaps the capacity of the parents to bring up that child which may relate to their socio-economic position as well um, but that's a difficult decision I agree and you can talk about when parents should or should not make that decision but I don't think there's anything very significant in whether the infant's death is brought about by turning off a respirator or by giving the infant a lethal injection, um, because the infant isn't on a respirator, let's say it doesn't need a respirator. Um, that seems to me to be you know, different means to the same end. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I don't really think it's going to change anything very much in terms of attitudes to people with disabilities. Yeah, I suppose the main critique would be something non-consequentialist, uh, you know, about the, which I, I don't subscribe to, just to propose it, is um, about the difference between actively killing and removing support or stopping helping. Just an interesting point about the fact that you raised Down syndrome, though, is that actually um, Down syndrome people report a much higher life satisfaction on average than the average person. So from your point of view, maybe somebody might even jump for joy when they, or should jump for joy if they get a, a kid with Down syndrome. Maybe in terms of, yes, and that's why I said, um, you know, it's a less severe condition maybe than, than I have in mind. I certainly think uh, one could take that view. And probably uh, either those women who are terminating pregnancies when they're told their, their child will have Down syndrome are um, either not well informed about the facts that you mentioned, which, you know, to say they're much happier life is, is open to some challenge, I guess, but, you know, certainly it's not a miserable life. I totally agree with that. Um, either that or they're thinking about themselves um, and perhaps other children that they're having and the greater demands that may be placed on them with a child with Down syndrome and they, you know, they could even be thinking about the fact that Down syndrome people generally 
uh, sterile and they may be wanting to have grandchildren. You know, there's, there's a whole range of factors that might come into those decisions. Would you say, though, the fact that they want to have grandchildren gives them, well, I, would, I don't like to say right, but does that balance out in terms of utility, the killing of something that's already been born, for example, a child that's already been born? Well, again, I don't think it makes a difference whether the child is already born or is in utero but has every prospect of being born. What about the there's three no months for, of the three months, for example? Where, where do you draw that line? That's difficult, I agree. Um, and normally you would want to diagnose the condition as soon as you can after birth, and partly that's because also there's going to be more attachment to the child if you have a child of three months. You know, parents would care about that child more than they will about a, a, a newborn. But... Uh, so I, I'm not really sure where I want to draw the line now. When I was a preference utilitarian, I related it to the abilities to see yourself as living over time. And I think the evidence was that that is not yet there at three months, but maybe it's there somewhere towards the second half of the first year of, of life. But as a hedonistic utilitarian, I'm not going to give that intrinsic weight now. So um, Just... Um so yeah, just before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask a little bit about your switch from preference to hedonistic utilitarianism and, and what influenced him, what you think the problems with preference utilitarianism are. Because at A-level, you were sort of the classic, when we learned about yeah. you as the classic preference yeah. utilitarian, you have Bentham and then, yeah. uh, let's take a modern example, Peter Singh at the preference yeah. utilitarian. So what, what motivated that move away from it? Uh, again, I think there, were, uh, there was an, an influence from Sidgwick um, at that stage, but also difficulties with the preference view and with the argument, um, which I think we quote from Peter Rowlton in uh, Point of View of the Universe, um, about, so, so Hare, Hare's view um, as a preference utilitarian was that the preferences we should take account of are not necessarily the actual preferences we have, but the ones that we would have if we were fully informed and thinking calmly. But and, and, you know, it's interesting that Sidgwick actually raises something like this about the, the desire-based theory. Sidgwick anticipates so much of later discussions, that's why he's so fascinating. Um, and he also takes the idea that, well, how do you decide? You know, either, either you have these actual preferences or you have these sort of rational preferences. And if you really talk about rational preferences, then um, you t need to take into account what are objective values, at least if you believe there are objective values at all. Uh, because a rational person would follow the objective values and so in that sense preference utilitarianism didn't really give you a good answer to what preferences you're supposed to follow so that was that was one problem and also i guess the idea that you were ignoring actual preferences meant that you might be doing something that somebody very much didn't want to be the case but um well yeah you could have somebody who's completely irrational when you give them the thing that they yeah. rationally want and or would rationally want, and, and they end up completely unsatisfied. That's right, yeah, and that yeah. was another, another puzzle. So there were, there were those, those puzzles that um, led me away from preference utilitarianism, but also I think another a reason why I was a preference utilitarian in the first place, it's not a coincidence that Hare was, was both a prescriptivist and a preference utilitarian. Um, the preference view sort of followed from his prescriptivism because he couldn't, accept the idea that there are objective values. So the views of the earlier utilitarians, Bentham, Mill and Sidgwick, were not really possible for him within that meta-ethic. But once I'd been persuaded that there may be objective values, then it was open to bring in some of those values and to think about what values might be objectively true 
Uh, and again, Parfit talks about this and says, you know, he thinks it's, it's self-evident that to inflict agony on someone for no good reason is wrong, that agony is a bad thing, that the universe is, goes worse if there are lots of people in agony than if they're not in agony. Perfect. Thank you. Um, yeah, just to, before we kind of round off, to bring back to the abortion argument, because the thought just came to me, I was curious where you thought life started, because I've had this debate with a lot of my friends, and it's something that really troubles me. Where does life start? Is that for you the second that the zygote and the egg, sorry, the zygote is formed? Well, firstly, there isn't any such second, because it takes some hours for the sperm to penetrate the egg, so you're going to have to decide whether you want to take the moment that the sperm begins to penetrate the outer layer of the egg, uh, although at this stage there's no genetic mixing because the genetic nucleus of the egg is in the center and it takes some time for the sperm to make its way through to the center and, and for the genes in the sperm to start mixing with the genes in the egg. So you, is that the moment you want to take? I mean, it's not, it's certainly, there's no single second. Okay. So you would have to draw a line somewhere there. But secondly, I'm quite prepared to say in general that uh, life begins at conception. That okay. seems to me a biologically true statement. Um, the life of an individual, you know, not life as a whole, because obviously life is a continuing process and, you know, began billions of years ago, somewhere in the sea, presumably. Um, but, uh, but the life of an individual being, a human being, if this is what we're talking about, begins at conception. But that doesn't answer any moral questions. You know? mm. There's, it, that only answers a moral question for those who say... Sanctity of life. Exactly. It's, it's always wrong to take the life of an innocent human being. That's the view that some natural law theorists, uh, many of them are following a Roman Catholic tradition, yes, Christians or Roman Catholics more specifically, uh, are following. So for them, if you hold that rule, then it's crucial to know when life begins. But if you don't hold that rule, and you think there are other factors... Um, matter about when it's right or wrong to end a life um, that's not the important question, when life begins it's, it's just taking you down a, 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 a dead end I think it doesn't advance the moral argument Thank you, thank you very much I think that's, um, that's all we have time for Yeah, thank you so much for coming on um, I have enjoyed the discussion good, good questions all around Thank you. I'd just like to know if you had maybe any concluding thoughts that we could end on. Anything you'd like to say maybe about your book, about veganism or anything else in general? Uh, uh, well, let me just say in general, um, I think ethics is a wonderful subject to study. Mm -hmm. um, not only because we've had a really interesting discussion and anybody listening to this can see that there are deep and difficult questions. But also because ethics does change lives. And um, you know that's what makes it such a remarkable area of study um, compared to most other things that people do which, which rarely change people's lives um, and I've seen that uh, again and again and, you, know, you mentioned that you become a vegan as a result of ethical arguments um, other people donate to effective charities as a result of, of ethical arguments so uh, I think this is really important I would encourage people to think about this and I would encourage people to think about it not as a merely theoretical question but also as a practical question a question how am I going to live? What are my values? And how am I going to live in accordance with those values? Do you have any specific thoughts to um, undergraduate students or university students about um, their ethical journeys or how would they um, advance their 
uh, learning in philosophy? Like, um, do you have any thoughts? Well, obviously, um, from what I'm saying, I hope that they will do some philosophy and specifically that they will do some ethics and get interested in it. But also to undergraduates, um, you have your lives in front of you. You have your career choices in front of you. Um, so think about that and think about the career that will do some good, perhaps do the most good if you're up for that. But um, I think often it's one that you will find rewarding and fulfilling as well. It'll be more meaningful if you are not just thinking about yourself, but doing good in the world as a whole. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. <laughs>